Welcome to a new episode of Fish On, the podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Reed, and I know absolutely nothing about fishing. So, let's get started. Joining me today is a man who needs no real introduction. His name has been synonymous with watching fishing on TV since 1983 and was one of the early pioneers of teaching people how to fish. You may have seen him on Saturday mornings on Global TV. He's an award-winning author, seminar speaker, conservationist, and a radio show host. Episode 5 of Fish On, the podcast welcomes Bob Izumi. How are you, Bob? Hey, doing well, Aaron. Thanks for asking. Doing oh. well. Well, thanks for joining us today. I thought before we get started, uh, we just see how you're doing uh, with the current pandemic. Are you preparing for the season or are you waiting to see what happens? Well, you know, um, it's crazy because who would have ever thought we'd go through this crisis? And uh, it's been uh, an interesting time, that's for sure. Um, and, you know, I, I really think I'm one of the fortunate ones because, you know, yeah, I've been, you know, um, at the house here for weeks on end now i don't even know how many weeks but uh, uh there's so many people that are on the front line that are working that are you know out there uh, um you know first responders grocery store workers uh truck drivers it, the list goes on and on and so you know to be cooped up in the house isn't that bad of a thing you know i live out in the country so i'm outside doing a little work inside doing a little work but but on the phone a lot, you know, with, with the TV series, there's always work to do. And this traditionally is sort of my in-between time when ice fishing ends and open water fishing starts. Um, I've got a lot of work to do with, you know, some of the sponsors and companies that I work with. So I've been on the phone for weeks on end, uh, just uh, working out details and, and some other things and a few social media projects and, and uh, scheduling and uh, just even the contracts and things. So, you know, it's, it's, there's always something to do. I mean, I, I think I've got like about three full-time jobs with what I've done for a living for the last four decades. So it's, uh, it's sort of normal for me to be home now, but, but normally it's 250, sometimes as high as 300 days a year I'm on the road. So that's pretty normal. I average like 300 days a year on the road for gosh, 30 years of my career, but I'm probably doing about 260 now, maybe on the road. So it's not as, as crazy, but this is the middle time. So it's sort of normal for me, but now that it's uh, May, I'm getting to that point where I really would like to get out in the water. Some of the fish seasons are opening up, so. And that's the other thing. You don't fish, eh, Aaron? Is that true? That is true, yes. Wow. So, you know, you're not going to talk hardcore fishing, but, you know, I've been fooling people for 40 years because, you know, uh, about this fishing stuff. I don't know anything about it either. So that makes two of us. Fantastic. I'm going to have a show coming to you soon. <laughs> <laughs> it could be the Unreal Fishing Show. <laughs> that's right. The Unreal Fishing Show. I love it. I'm going to write right. that down. Um, so... There's a lot of planning going into this season and you have a bit more time. Um, how do you think the, the pandemic will affect the industry from your point of view? Well, you know, every day there isn't an, an hour of the waking part of the day where I'm awake, where I don't think of how many people this is going to affect. I mean, not only for the people that, you know, get COVID and some of the people that don't survive, which is just devastating. But then from an economic standpoint, um, you know, it's going to be tough. I mean, this is like, this is just the tip of the iceberg, you know, um, there's going to be businesses that are going to have tough times coming up. And, and I often think of 
where and you know i was talking to my sister lynn she's a doctor and she was talking about you know family practitioners like a lot of them may have to close up shop after this because they can't do a lot of billings which is how they make their living a lot of them um when she had her practice she just recently retired but she's been doing locum work like four and five days of work a week so she's like working almost full-time now anyway but um you know when she had her full practice going on you know she had staff full-time employees office space all that and you know you have to have cash flow to keep coming in to make ends meet and i never even thought of that till we were speaking the other night she said that but then you know i look at hotels restaurants retail stores car dealerships uh fishing lodges outfitters guides there are so many people affected by this that you know down the road when the subsidies and that run out uh what are they going to do if you know that they don't have enough you know to keep going and that's uh there's gonna be some tough times i i it scares me uh but you know i mean the biggest thing is you just got to stay positive and and some people are gonna have some changes in their life that may not be what they had planned but uh um, I guess, you, you know, you're going to have to roll with the punches as we go through this because every day seems to be the same as the day before other than, you know, maybe a few less deaths. But, uh, you know, they're talking about, you know, another wave of this coming through and uh, they need a vaccine and, and all those things. So a lot of uncertainty uh, in everything with health, with uh, economy. I, I think we got we got some things that we're, you know, you know, remember about this pandemic that are going to be crazy and, and for a lot of reasons. Yeah, it, it's amazing when you mentioned that the, the amount of connections, you know, people think, oh, well, the, all the stores are closed, but it's, you know, the people that they are, they employ and then there's the people that they're connected to and they're connected to. And, uh, and, and we've never been through something like this before at this level. No, it, it, you're right, though. It's 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 a big circle, you know, when you think of, uh, how, um, you know, businesses and, and money sort of goes around, you know, and, uh, and, and it, it's crazy to think of, of, you know, all the people that just, uh, are not getting the business. I mean, from the taxi drivers and, and, and just, it goes everywhere. And, and, uh, I, yeah, it's a sad, sad deal, but, uh, Hey, we're going to get through it. That's for sure. Uh, going to take a little while but uh, we'll get through it and and that's why you know with what i do yeah i fish for a living i've been very very blessed to be doing this for gosh since i full-time canada's first full-time fishing professional when i was 21 that was like 41 years ago or so um it's it's crazy uh, to think that i've made a living fishing but you know in the big scheme of things i'm lucky but you know, I do worry about a lot of people around the world that are going to be affected. And this is uh, this is definitely going to be some trying times. That's for sure. Can't disagree with that. Um, I, I touched on it earlier. I said you were a pioneer in the television industry. And, and what I want to talk about is when you first started this, um, I mean, obviously, the technology was very different, right? Um you know this uh, this is before they had the gopro cameras this is before they had the underwater gopros and it, it was a lot more complicated to film so what was it like and and what what did, what made you decide to uh, start a tv show in the beginning 
Well, it, that was all really crazy because, you know, the notoriety that I've got from the TV fishing show for, you know, the last, I don't know, what did you say, 83, I guess we started. So <laughs> for all these years is is really, it's, it's really great, but it's really not why I started it. I didn't even think about the notoriety. In fact, it was the last thing on my mind. I started the fishing show to was to support my tournament fishing addiction. So back in 83, I'd already been fishing tournaments since I was 15 years old, kids derbies when I was just little, like a little kid. Um, my dad used to take us to the kids derbies. But then when I was 15 years old, my dad organized and ran the first professional sort of bass tournament in Canada, competitive tournament where you drew for your partner. One of you had a boat, the other didn't. I was 15. I didn't have a boat. Actually, I had a boat, but it was a uh, um, oh gosh, 15 years old. I had a $200 boat. I believe it was an old uh, aluminum boat that leaked and you had to, you know, bucket out the water about every half hour or you'd be up to your knees in it. But, um, the thing is, is, uh, when I got involved in that tournament fishing, I really got hooked on competitive fishing and dad ran that till I was into my twenties. And around when I was about 22 or 23, he passed away. And then I ran at the memorial tournament for a number of years. But but that's when I, you know, started fishing tournaments all over. Like when I, you know, was 18, 19, 20 years old, I started going all over the place. And, you know, in my 20s, I'd be down in Ohio and all across Ontario and out to Manitoba for a walleye tournament and then down into Michigan for a bass tournament or New York. And I got involved in this tournament fishing and started doing seminars and fishing for a living and starving to death. So for three years in a row, um, from 21 on, I did nothing but, you know, fish for a living, pick up a few odd jobs in between, but for the most part, just, you know, try to make a living of fishing. If I didn't have enough money um, going from one tournament to the next uh, for a hotel, then I'd sleep in my car uh, the night before the tournament or whatever, then compete the next day. And it was always hand to mouth. And then I happened to be at a family picnic and a distant relative uh, by marriage. So it would have been my brother-in-law's uncle was there. Um, we're just sitting there at the picnic and talking. And he said, oh, what do you do for a living? I said, well, I'm trying this professional fishing for a living. I've been doing it three years, but I'm starving to death, but I love it. And I was single back then and young and footloose and fancy free. So it really didn't matter too much. But, you know, I was just having having fun and, and uh, you know, didn't really worry about money was never an uh, I wouldn't say money was never an object. I mean, I grew up very poor. My dad raised four of us as a single parent. So we grew up dirt poor. But. I was never money driven, never, ever money driven. It was always, I just loved to enjoy what, what, what I was doing. And that was this, this fishing business. So I mentioned to him, you know, I got to do something else. Maybe I should do like a TV fishing show. And back then Red Fisher had already retired, who was a, uh, iconic older, uh, gentleman, uh, from Ohio that moved to Canada and did a fishing show. And I believe his fishing show was about eight years um, he did it for and you know that there was a red green comedy show was a bit of a takeoff of a red Fisher show um, and then uh, um, John Candy did uh, SCTV uh, he had uh, um, a deal there where he's in a cabin and and it was like a red Fisher type show but he'd have rock groups out and have jokes on him and stuff like that so um, 
for his time period, he made quite a mark, but he was already retired when I started in 83. And so this guy that I'd met, Bob McGuigan, um, he owned a little one-man advertising agency. And so he was shooting the odd you know, TV commercial for some of the GM dealers, Southwest Ontario, he had a jewelry store and some other people that he shot commercials. So he knew a cameraman. So he said, well, why don't we try, try it? We'll go shoot a pilot. So he got this cameraman from Toronto who was more shooting uh, rock videos and doing freelance work. And this guy would like go to Studio 54 in New York and, you know, hang with Joe Cocker and stuff in the, the heydays in the early 80s and that shoot, you know, that type of stuff, rock videos and that. And and he was our initial cameraman. And we went out and shot a pilot and uh, and then pedaled it around to, I believe it was 12 stations in Ontario. And uh, Bob McGuigan and I drove around, my partner at the time, to these stations, showed them our pilot and said, hey, we uh, we want to start this fishing show. And we picked up 13 stations out of 12 visits because when we we're in your home area in Ottawa at the local station, the program director from um, down the road, uh, what's just uh, north of you, the next TV station um, on the river, uh, starts with a P. Um, oh, Petawawa. At Petawawa. I believe it was the program director uh, from the Petawawa station was there. And he says, oh, I'll take it from my station, too. So we picked up 13 stations, uh, did uh, 13 shows that year. Um, the next year, we went right across Canada with it and uh, did 26 shows. And the rest is history. That's how we started. And you got to re realize that the days, that whole time era was different than it is now because there were only like, I don't know, I'm guessing maybe eight stations, nine stations in the city of Toronto that came in on antenna. So you had Hamilton, Barrie, the Toronto stations, a few ethnic stations, um, the French station there and that. So so it was like, you know, there weren't a lot of sh stations around to see things. So naturally, we had a pretty good audience during those heydays, you know, the 80s and 90s, before digital TV and cable TV and all those things started to break loose. So uh, where there were more stations and, and, uh, and, you know, nowadays, I mean, you know, there's hundreds of different types of specialty networks, uh, mm -hmm. including even like World Fishing Network and Sportsman's Channel Canada and all these networks that are just, you know, specific for what folks want to watch and then of course everybody now is tuned in on the internet you know watching on demand or uh youtube videos and and listening to podcasts like this so there's a lot of options now but back then we got in it in the heyday when there weren't a lot of broadcast options and uh, timing was pretty good although we did start for the first 10 years of tv i mean uh, you know contrary to what people probably saw, you know, they'd see me fishing in the Northwest Territories or, um, you know, in Northern Ontario or, or Manitoba, wherever I might have been filming, they go, oh, life is good, you know, but it was still 10 years of starving. I, uh, I drew a small salary out of the company and we just barely chugged along. And then after about, I'd say eight to 10 years, things started to gel pretty good, you know, and, and we, um, we're doing lots of seminar circuits, uh, all over the place and you know everywhere from detroit to chicago to out manitoba in every little one horse town in canada we'd be doing seminars and and shooting our shows technology has changed so much and like you said there's on the demand now and there's the youtube channels and podcasts like have you changed the way you you approach your show um 
Not really. Um, you know, we called it the real fishing show because we try to show things just like they happen, you know. So, you know, we used to show probably a few more crazier blooper things in the early years. Um, and uh, now, you know, we don't shoot quite as much tape when we're out there. And, uh, you know, if we got the fish dialed in, uh, Aaron, you know, it's it's we're out there, we're filming, we get our show shot. Sometimes it takes an hour to get the show shot. Sometimes we might be shooting for three days and I'm changing clothes every day and I'm fishing a different area of the lake. And, you know, we're trying to catch some muskies or some saltwater fish to make enough for the show. So we show it as it happens, you know, and say, you know, here it is day two or day three. But so it's all over the map how long it takes to do a show. That hasn't changed since the 80s. Um, the, uh, the equipment's changed immensely. Um, you, know, you, you know, you take all these GoPros and, you know, anybody can do fishing videos now for very uh, little money. Um, you know, you could buy a GoPro or even one of the, the inexpensive knockoffs of one and, and get rocket on it. In those early years, we shot on three-quarter inch tape so that the uh, camera was hooked up by a, by a, a cord or a bunch of wires um, to a big deck. And that deck, of course, uh, was giant. So the cameraman had a lot of stuff to carry other than just a camera. Then we progressed into three-quarter or half-inch tape, Betacam, then Betacam SP. And those cameras were crazy. At the highest, we paid... $125,000 for a Betacam SP, um, probably early 90s, maybe, in that neighborhood. We, I remember we had two Betacams that were $64,000 each. And the equipment was crazy expensive during the era of the 80s, 90s, and into the early 2000s till you started getting a lot of these uh, um, prosumer cameras you know, that were maybe this big um, that you could get for like eight, 10, 12 grand, six grand, whatever. They were a lot cheaper than spending, you know, 60 grand or 125 grand for a camera. And the problem with technology, as you know, being a cameraman for, for, for the news is that, that uh, as technology changes, it doesn't matter how much those cameras cost back then, the technology now is a lot better and better definition and, and more pixels and it's incredible even though the camera might cost a tenth of the price right so yeah. those things really changed uh, a lot and but our biggest problem in those early years was wireless microphones yeah so for the first few years we shot we were running cords from the deck up our pant leg up our shirt and then to a lav mic right here and so those were it was pretty cumbersome because as long as the cameraman was close to you in the boat you were good but if you had to get cutaways from another boat you couldn't get audio because you didn't have wireless capability unless you used a you know a shotgun mic right right so um that was tricky and then we went to wireless mics and we started using all kinds of expensive wireless mics but they they'd have their issues too back then where you'd pick up frequencies and that through the airwaves and they'd be crackly and and then you know some of the wires were brittle and they'd break at the plugs and so and you know even to this day wireless microphones we still because we're out out in a boat and i'm moving around in the boats and they're you know usually on our belt I, I mean we go through so many microphone cables a year probably i'd say three to five microphone cables a year just shooting our series just because you know, they get, you know, bellies like mine are, are 
hitting them and bending the plugs and stuff like that. So even now, you know, sometimes the audio um, gets so crazy and you got to change out, you know, change mics and stuff like that. Yeah, not to mention all the batteries you go through. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, lots of AAAs. Used to be nine volts on the uh, the English mics we used to use the microns and that, but now uh, forget which ones we're using now. But uh, I don't know. The, yeah, it's, it, the technology is definitely pretty good now, though. We don't get much interference. Although my son, who's my cameraman, does say he thinks I've got something in my body that is negative towards microphones. He says, I don't know. I don't know if there's too much rock up here or uh, too much wood or what in my system or magnets or something. Maybe I got fish hooks in my, uh, in my body that are acting as uh, sort of diffusers or antennas or something. I don't know. He says that, you know, he can put mics on any of the guests and he has no problems, but it's always me who he has a problem with. So I'm not sure. <laughs> wow. And I wanted to ask you about uh, you. You went through the uh, the camera equipment and and the gear and filming. What about the editing process? Were you ever involved in that? Did you oversee it? I used to sit in with the editor, um, and uh, I'll never forget my earliest editor. You know, he'd be sometimes editing with his feet on you know on the shuttle and stuff. Um, and it was back then. It was all videotape, right? Yeah. But he he was an old hippie, um, and and you know it'd be late at night and we'd be working till sometimes I remember working round the clock with editors. Literally, we'd do all nighters editing the show. And and I remember he'd have his feet up there. He'd be so tired. Instead of using his hands, he'd be just pressing the buttons and turning the uh, shuttle to go back and forth on tape. Because back then it'd be two decks and it would be a tape here yep. and a tape here, and you're stealing from this tape to put on the uh, yep. the master, you know. So. Yeah, it was it was different, but after about three, maybe five years, three to five years, I quit going in to see the whole edit because it used to drive me crazy. I don't like seeing myself um, on video. Like I don't know, it just to me, I don't like watching myself. Uh, it doesn't uh, really turn my crank. So I used to just dread having to sit there, and I'd find it so boring to watch it. You know you know, the same shots over and over as they shuttle the tape back and forth. It's so different now with digital editing, you know, as you know, it's, it's a different world. But back then it was basically, you know, we were just, you know, basically the early years of videotape where, um, you know, before that film, you had to literally cut it right with a, uh, with a knife. Yeah. So yeah, this was, this was a, almost as painstakingly slow though. It took a long time to just get, 20 you know two or 23 minutes of footage to make a show with the commercial breaks out that's what about a half hour show is in that neighborhood so uh yeah it was it was different that's for sure and just to understand the perspective because uh, last week um we were talking about paul's show and the editing process and it took us about a week, even, um, you know, with today's technology to still you got to go through the footage and you have to find what I call the greatest hits. Right. And then yeah. you have a timeline of what you're going to use on the show and then you break that down. So it fits into 30 minutes. So how long did it take in, in those early days going through those spools? It was always it was always at least a week. Yeah. Eh? Yeah. And and you have to realize that, that, you know, some shoots, as I said earlier, you know, we might have flew into a fly-in fishing place and, and we might have shot for three or four days and there might have been enough material there for a couple of shows, but they'd still have a lot of tape to edit 
to get you know the bigger fish and and all those things so it was uh it was a lot of editing and uh and sometimes it would take five days of rough editing and then another bunch of days of final cut too you know where you'd go yep. in and and uh and and we did that you know all over it so many studios from from uh oh saint jacobs in, in ontario to uh burlington to guelph to uh downtown toronto i mean uh, we we're down in st Catharines. we were all over the place at studios over the years and then eventually we we moved into our own uh complex and edited in-house you know and so it was it was good but in the heyday you know it's funny how things change but the heyday of the fishing show, I had uh, three full-time camera people and two full-time editors, and I don't know how many other staff, and it was crazy for a fishing show to have that many. Now, you know, I've got uh, my son, Darren, who shoots, and uh, we got Simon down in St. Catharines, who uh, occasionally shoots a, a second camera for us, but he does the uh, final editing for the show. Mm-hmm. And so- he edits the show and and uh, he's a freelance who does other work and other TV shows and that. But it's a far cry from the heyday where, you know, it was like we had a big staff. I mean, a lot of staff. Uh, for the fishing show alone, I'm not sure how many we had, but I know under one roof there was 18 people doing doing things with the magazine and a few other projects and then the fishing show and stuff like that. So yeah, it was a lot of people and. It was more HR work than uh, than actually concentrating on the fish, and uh, it's nicer when when there's not as you know it it was it was neat to go through that era, but it was always it seemed like it was it was overload, you know, on things too. You know, you'd have a production meeting and there'd be eight people in there. Now we just go shoot a show, you know, we don't even talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> so. No need to uh, do a production meeting anymore. No, not much. So, I mean, I probably should, but I don't. <laughs> so, for a guy who's been doing this show this long, what what part of it is uh, what make what what still makes it rewarding for you? Well, because I've done it so long now that it it seems that it's just it's what I do. Um, I don't know how long I'll do it for. Probably not. Uh, not forever for sure I mean not till I can't walk anymore that's not a I want to fish tournaments that's really what I want to do I mean I love tournament fishing I still fish you know maybe 15 tournaments a year bass tournaments and I like competitive fishing so that's what I eat sleep and drink when I'm not thinking of work which is I love tournaments that's my release so you know if I can get away fish and turn so I mean, that was the end goal all along when I started the show in 83 was, yeah, I want to, I want to go fish more tournaments, but you know, I mean, guys got to make a living too. So, uh, and tournaments can be lucrative, but I've always said, if you want to make a, a small fortune fishing bass tournament, start with a big one because it can be pretty expensive at times. You know, you don't always win, that's for sure. And I wanted to ask you about uh, a couple of years ago, you went to, uh, to Cochrane to film one of your episodes. And uh, Paul Ecce had a chance to to film with you. And what do you recall about that trip? Well, I I had a lot of fun. I, of course, uh, the whole crew that was was on that trip uh, from you know from Timmins and uh, and uh, all the uh, the the area up and up there was they were all real neat guys. We had a lot of fun. Um, we we didn't catch uh, many many big fish. We caught a lot of a lot of small walleyes. Um, 
had some had some good meals and some good times up there. Took took a chef with us. Um, that that trip, I, I realized uh, be, while we were setting it up that we were going to cook our own meals in our cabins, you know, up there. So um, what I did is I invited this buddy of mine who's an executive chef, and at the time he was at uh, the Martini House, which is a restaurant down in Burlington, and and I invited him uh, to come up because he liked fishing. So I said to him, his name's Matt. I said, Matt, I got a deal for you. You want to come fishing, ice fishing? He goes, well, that'd be cool. <laughs> We're going to Cochrane. Hey, oh, that's neat. Yeah, it'd be awesome. I said, the only thing is at night and in the morning, you got to cook. Oh, and on the ice, you got to cook if we're going to do like a cooking segment too. <laughs> he said, no problem. But, you know, being a pro, that's like my dad was a chef when he was alive. And I know a lot of different chefs out there that do it for a living. And for somebody that does for a living, zipping up a meal for even, you know, 12 or 15 people or however we had up on that trip, it's very easy to do for a person that does it for a living because it, they don't stress. Now I like to cook, but when I've got company coming and we got 10 or 12 people or whatever, if I got lots of time, I'm good. But if I'm rushed, you know, it's like, it's pretty crazy getting everything together. But for, for these people that do it for a living, it's just boom, boom, boom. And they're, you know, mixing and slashing and cooking and frying and, and basting and stuff. And it's just normal for them. So it was pretty neat. He caught, he caught the biggest damn fish on the trip, if I remember correctly, too. Matt, Matt caught the biggest walleye. So, yeah, it was, it was good for him. He had a good time. And that was the last time I fished with him, actually. I haven't seen him for a while. Ran into his wife in Toronto at a function, but I haven't seen him. But, um, yeah, you know, that's it's probably, to answer your question, though, about, about that trip, I realized this only in the last few years that, that, you know, as much as I've traveled the world and we've shot in Russia and Australia and northern parts of Canada and, you know, everywhere, Brazil and Venezuela, all over the place, it's not really the fish. Even though I'm a fanatical fisherman and I like fish, it's probably more about the people and the memories more than than the, the fishing. And, and, you know, when I think of that trip up there, to Cochrane and and uh, going way back in with the ice, uh, uh, the snow bear, um, our ice fishing machine, and then the snowmobiles and and uh, a few of the guys brought ATVs and and we went back in there and had so much fun. It's more of the laughs we had and the memories we made, and that more than even the fishing because the fishing was secondary. Uh, and 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 that's the way it is in most cases, no matter where we go. You know, you remember the fish and. And you remember the ones you caught, the ones you lost, and all that stuff. But usually, it's more about you know some of the funny things that happen on the trip, and you know some of the me, me. I think of the meals a lot. I mean, you know, we had some wonderful meals. One night, Matt made you know beef tenderloin, and I mean it was cooked to perfection. You can cut it with a spoon, you know, and you know those type of things are pretty good. You know, that's uh, that's some pretty nice living when you can have memories like that. It's funny because, you know, there's there's a lot of elements in fishing and being in the outdoors that, that you know, you're going through the motions and sometimes you don't even think about them till after you're you're done, you know. And, yep. and uh, you know, it could be like I remember hundreds of nights coming in as the sun's going down and just last fall and and even as six, seven weeks ago before this pandemic 
uh, I was bass fishing in Florida for a bit, and uh, I, I I literally the last night I was down there, um, all that afternoon I fished with some friends. Um, we caught a bunch of largemouth bass, and and this uh, friend of mine brought his dad and his girlfriend. And I let them fish. I didn't fish. I ran the boat, and I actually trolled uh, with deep diving crankbaits for largemouth bass, fishing these uh, phosphate pits back at a pasture. And we were trolling these pits, and they caught 30 or 40 largemouth that afternoon. And it was like 6 o'clock at night, and I I was going to start dragging the boat back um, that I had left down there earlier in January. And so, you know, this is the first week of March, and and the pandemic hadn't hit really yet. And and, but I... I knew I had to get back, get some work done, and the you know Toronto Sportsman Show was coming up, and that so, so I said goodbye to them, and I said I might fish for a bit more, and you know the boat was on the trailer, and I was going to drive uh, that night into Georgia, even though I was in uh, you know South Central Florida, and I said you know it's a beautiful night, so I'm by myself, I'm back in a pasture with cows, and that's it, and alligators, lots of alligators in these pits. And I said, I got to go fishing. And I launched the, the aluminum bass boat, put it in. And, you know, in the first 15 minutes, I caught a bass that was just under seven pounds, another six and a half pounder, four pounder, two and a half. And I, I caught about a dozen bass before uh, the, the sun went down. I lo- loaded the boat in the dark back there. The mosquitoes ate me alive. But as I was doing all that, the sun's going down and I'm just loving life. You know, I mean, to me, that was just so cool to be able to catch fish, not worry about anything, not even knowing that this this crisis, this pandemic was going to hit. I mean, you know, COVID-19, it was like, yeah, it was just starting on the news. They were talking about things, but nothing had really, uh, you know, gone crazy yet um, in North America. And... Uh, and then I loaded the boat and I got out of there. It was in the dark. I think I drove till two in the morning into Georgia, got a hotel room and then, then drove back the next day and a half and, and got back. And that's when, you know, everything was just starting. And, uh, and so it, it, you know, the memory was incredible, but boy, it soon got lost when I got back into the real world and, and found out that, you know, um, it was just, it was just, I mean, barely starting. Like there was, there was nothing talking about quarantine or anything at that point. It, it hadn't been, nothing had been brought up yet about it. So I was just, and then when I got back home and, you know, another week passes and, and now, you know, it's hitting the fan big time and, and we're in it. So, yeah, it was, it was different. You know, I went from having credible memory of being on the water to all of a sudden the world has changed. And uh, here we are, um, you know, we're, we're still in the, Amid, uh, amongst it, I'm not sure if we're over the, the peak. I think we might be, but but uh, time will tell, I guess. And now a word from our sponsors. Albert Sports and Workwear has been a family-owned business for over 60 years. Our team excels in customer service and will help you during the COVID-19 pandemic. Your outdoor store at 822 Riverside Drive in Timmins. Are serious about catching fish that HDS is a dead giveaway you've got the best fish finding sonar money can buy time to build the ultimate fish finding system with live sight sonar see what your lure is doing in real time 
Watch fish strike as it happens. See for yourself. Take the LiveSight Sonar 30-Day Challenge. If LiveSight Sonar doesn't help you find and catch more fish, send it back, no questions asked. So, Bob, how do you think things might rebound after the pandemic? I, I don't know what the statistics are now, but they used to say that one in five fished in Canada. So 20% of the population were fairly active in fishing or fished some. And um, the one thing I, I do believe that will come out of this pandemic as a lot of folks will have cabin fever that aren't working, that have been more housebound more on the last you know five, six weeks than, than uh, ever before, they're gonna be ready to hit the outdoors. And you know, I had an interesting call with uh, um, a person that was director of a giant hotel association the other day that had, I don't know, something like 13,000 or 15,000 hotel rooms in their association. And uh, he was telling me that, you know, a lot of things like weddings and business conferences for the time being are probably not happening uh, in hotels in the real near future. So they were looking at sport as being something that'll rebound. And I said, what do you mean sport? And he said, well, hiking, cycling, fishing, um, you know, maybe baseball tournaments, all those things that might attract people to say, hey, I got to get out of the house, get a room somewhere and, you know, go enjoy the outdoors or some sports in the outdoors. And so that was neat to hear and I, I agree i mean there's no live sports to speak of on tv right now um you know as we're as we're doing this podcast i'm sure it'll change in the near future where they might have no spectators and stuff and then less spectators as they get further uh, down the road but but it's just it's just weird right now that you know there's not a lot uh, not a lot going on so i think a lot of people that enjoy the outdoors are going to grasp it with both hands when this is done and just be so happy to be out and about. And I mean, let's face it, it's spring, right? So here in Canada, everybody's, you know, gets ready for that, you know, breath of fresh air, you know? So Yeah, no, I, I think that's a very valid point. And, and I think it's going to change the way people normally do their routines, right? And And people who maybe don't go outdoors are going to want to now. And there'll be this this mass uh, exodus of people just wanting to to do the things that you know they weren't able to do and maybe try something new yeah i i think so i i, I do believe a lot of people are going to probably want to try camping and and get space around them and fresh air and and all of those things because uh um you know it's it's tough. I mean, the restaurants and all those things that people, you know, may be used to in their lifestyle haven't been happening and movie theaters and, and, you know, live, you know, concerts and, and, uh, sports games and things like that. So there's just not a lot going on. And, and, uh, I don't know, I, I can't wait to get out fishing again. Uh, um, and you know, once those, you know, some of those ramps start opening up the public ramps and that, I'll be back at it, but until then, you know, I uh, I'm just waiting and and working away and and rigging tackle and working on boats and getting ready for you know hopefully a tournament season that'll happen this season and and also you know get ready to shoot my shows because normally we're just starting to get out there to shoot our shows you know so it's uh, it's that time of the year but 
you know, the unfortunate thing will be a lot of these fishing lodges won't be open until they get the green light. And once they get the green light, of course, uh, you know, we'll hit a few of those, you know, uh, across the north and, and uh, get at it again. But it, it's definitely going to be different. I mean, it's, uh, it'll be a different uh, uh, world for a while. I mean, I got my face mask ready, but uh, <laughs> hopefully out in the middle of the lake, I won't have to wear it. Although we wear those buffs, you know, a lot, you know, that like companies like Columbia wear right. uh, or that they make. And, you know, they're for the sun, you know, and my son wears his all the time. Uh, whether he's shooting the camera or fishing a tournament with me. And, and you know, he doesn't have to put sunscreen on his nose or cheeks or, or even his ears. He'll wear the, the face mask, you know, with the sunglasses and his hat on and stuff. So, um, but, uh, you know, I I might have to say, well, I I think it's just changing now where, where some of the stores, you know, uh, like uh, Costco, I heard you have to wear the uh, the face mask now when you go in, uh, starting starting in the very near future. I, somebody told me they saw a sign. So yeah, I heard that too. Yeah, let's let's switch gears a little bit. Um, fish on. Um, Paul is now in his fourth season, and we started this podcast as as an extension of of the community TV show produced by Eastlink TV up in Timmins. And so at this point, what advice would you offer him? Well, you know, the, the heyday of getting um, a lot of the sponsorships and things like that happened in those days when I started out aren't there as much now um, because uh, the pie is cut up a lot of different ways. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of folks now that, you know, are getting part of those marketing budgets, you know, in our industry, in the fishing outdoor industry, where where when I started in the early years, it was, you know, it was a, a pie that had very few pieces because there was just not many people doing it. You know, there were a few fishing shows that started after I started. Uh, a few came aboard in the mid 80s and uh, and then more and more. And so now there are so many fishing shows, um, YouTube uh, shows, uh tournament anglers influencers all these these people that are you know making a living here and there in the fishing business it's tougher now to make a living in it but if you want to do it for the love of it which i think that's the reason paul's doing it because he has a full-time job um is that's a good thing i mean it's hard to say, hey, I'm going to jump in it and make a living in it in this day and age, at least in TV broadcast, because there's so many associated costs with it. You know, shooting, editing, other expenses. And, and uh, you know, when you go national, of course, there's airtime and things like that that you have to buy. So it, it changes the dynamics and it becomes a, a bit of a machine to run, you know. Um, but if you keep the love in it and that's why you're doing it because you want to show people you know the fun or the education or or the experience or whatever that might be for for being out in the outdoors and and fishing that's a cool thing i mean hey why not do it um but the you shouldn't have too big expectations of making a real living in it in this day and age it's changed so much and i was very fortunate uh, Aaron, that I got into it so early in my career back, you know, when there weren't many things to watch. I mean, a lot of those people, I mean, they didn't have a lot of choices. So they turned TV, click around and, oh, might as well watch a Zoomy fishing show. There's nothing else on. Nowadays, they got a lot of choices, right? So it's changed. And so so the viewerships are, are divvied up more. 
And so are those marketing dollars. That's probably the biggest sort of advice I have that it's just changed a lot, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and TV itself is diminishing because people can just stream whatever they want, right? They're not forced to sit in front of the TV and watch a, watch a show that's on, right? Yeah, but, but you know, the, the good thing, though, the positive about, uh, you know, a show like Fish On is you're showing fishing in a region that people that live in that region want to see. Yep. And other people that live outside of that region would like to see too. But the thing is, is it gets of really interest of a lot of folks that say, oh, I can drive to that lake. You know, it's an hour away or half hour away or 20 minutes away or whatever that might be that it's accessible to them. Right. And, uh, and you know, we've always wondered what that format is, even to this day. Because no matter what kind of show you shoot, um, you know, you, you, you'll get viewers like, I remember hearing uh, one comment from a, a viewer was, as soon as we see you're not fishing in Canada somewhere, we turn the channel. Wow. And hey, that's fine. I mean, that's why they have a, a you know a clicker. You can change the channel. I mean, we don't force anybody to watch. But then, then others will say, I'm particularly interested when you do bass shows, or I really like it when you do a fly fishing show, or I really like it when you do trolling for walleyes or, or salmon. You know. So the thing is about the fishing world is there are some viewers that will watch a fishing show just because they like, you know, the laughs they're having or the the ambiance or the scenery or whatever it may be. But then there's others that are hardcore in the angling community that are only skewed towards the species or areas that they fish. And that's what they want to see, right? Right. And so a local fishing show has got a lot of merit. There's no question. But you know, in our case, because, you know, our shows aired all over the place, um, you know, in, in Canada, the U.S. and all over that I try to mix it up. But, you know, as we've gone uh, this many years now, it's hard because, you know, as much as you mix it up, I mean, you can't do enough of one thing to satisfy the hardcores that want to see that skewed sort of show, you know? Yep. So, it, you know, and that's that's the way it is. But, uh, hey. I do it. I have fun. And, you know, if people want to watch it, great. If they don't, it's their choice, too. So no, you, you make a good point about Paul's show being up in Timmins is that's really their um, the thing they do up there. Right. Is the outdoorsman and the fishing. And one of the things that uh, I was surprised by is that there wasn't already a fishing show. <laughs> yeah, it's, well, the thing is, as, as you guys know, that, you know, it's, it takes a few dollars to get out there and and you know put gas in the boat and in the truck or whatever and, and get out there and shoot shows and that and and it's and and i have seen you know some local shows over the years that are, are really good and and that but you just it, it's hard to keep them going for any length of time because it becomes an issue of you know should we grow this into more markets and that's just like us when we started in ontario back in the early 80s and then grew it right across canada and then eventually you know, we at one time we were in, you know, mainland China and all kinds of places with the show and, and it was all over the place. But it it uh, it becomes, you know, I remember going from Ontario to National 
and I would get, you know, Saskatchewan and, and I'd get, you know, the stations out in BC and that, Hey, when are you going to shoot some shows in our backyard? When are you going to come out to Alberta and when right. are you come to Manitoba? So and out to the Maritimes. So it, it becomes one of those where all of a sudden now you need to have bigger budgets to travel yeah. more and capture that, you know? And, and so it becomes a catch 22, you know, in terms of, do you go for it or don't you, or do you just keep it where it is, you know? And that's, uh, and my suggestion is keep it where it is because it's very competitive out there right now. And, and, uh, on a national level and, you know, it's just, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, I'm still doing it, but, uh, it's not the same business model as it used to be. That's for sure. Well, thanks for joining us for episode five of fish on the podcast. We decided this week to give Paul a rest, but he'll be back next week with his thoughts on the upcoming season. Until then, stay safe and enjoy the long weekend and catch some fish.